all set up and I saw an envelope in the bottom of the box that I was going through and I looked at it and I said, what's that? And I looked inside and as I kind of peeked in, I saw a very distinct handwriting. It was my mom's. I could recognize my mom's handwriting from 100 miles away, I think. And so I was very curious because it wasn't normally a place that I would keep letters that uh, my mom would send me. Sometimes I keep stuff just because I want to save it, look back over it later. It just wasn't a place I'd normally keep it. So I, I pulled it out and as I started reading it, it was very interesting to me. It was dated four years ago. I'm a senior, and so if you want to calculate back, you can realize that that was when I was making my college decision four years ago. Where was David Bosworth going to attend for college? And my mom was recounting this in the journal. It was interesting. It's, it's fun to read stuff that you've written, but it's, it's even more fun to read something your parents have written about you and to look at that four years later. Most of you probably don't know this, uh, but I went to a prep school, a very, an Ivy League prep school in, in Tennessee. Um, I had my prep days, and uh, it's very interesting because at this school, there's a lot of pressure to go to Ivy League colleges. I have friends at MIT, at Princeton, Yale, Harvard, all these places, and yet, in my mind, that wasn't what I desired to do for college. Obviously, I'm at the master's college, but uh, there was no desire in my heart to... Don't take that the wrong way. I had been at a campus where Christianity had been attacked day in and day out, where my faith had been challenged, where the veracity, the truthfulness of God's word had been doubted. And I wanted desperately to go to a place where they would teach me how to understand God's word, where they would teach me what it meant to defend God's word academically. And moreover, I wanted to learn how to defend scripture from men who, and women who loved God and who walked with him and who could teach me how to live that out in their daily life. That was the desire of my heart. And so I decided to buck the system. I decided to look into Christian colleges. And I had about five that I looked into. And as I narrowed my choices down, I narrowed it down to two choices. I was looking at Northwestern College up in Minneapolis, Minnesota, and I was looking at Master's College. And as I was thinking through these decisions, I, I was talking, obviously, with the financial aid departments. And Northwestern Bible College is a very good college. In fact, you might remember Dr. Ailing last year, the Egyptologist, teaches there. An excellent place. Uh, and they're also very, very heavily endowed. And they were able, just because of the donations that they had had to their school, to offer me quite significant, virtually a full scholarship to their school. And I could go work that summer before I went off to college, not even have to work through the school year, not have any loans, nothing to pay off. And I compared that to the master's college, who they did the best they could and they were as gracious as they could, but honestly, it was, it was, you know, we can offer you this and we can help you out with a loan and we can help you out with this much aid and maybe you can get the Cal Grant next year if you qualify, but we won't know and you'll need to live here for the summer and... And uh, I looked at that and I compared the two options. And it's not hard when you have those two options. You go, well, here's a full scholarship and here's something you have to go to school. You have to work really hard, carry a full load, not know if you're going to have something there in the future, if it'll work for four years. And I mean, it's not a hard, hard decision uh, when you're looking at things from a human perspective. And yet, I knew that I wanted to come to Masters. I really sensed that God was doing something here, that there was something unique about the Masters College. And I went... All this was going through my mind, and my mother was recounting this in the journal that she was writing. I went to church one Sunday, very confused, and I was talking to my Sunday school teacher. His name was Nathan Graves. He's uh, now a missionary with Robin Pam Provost over in Albania. But at this time, he was teaching my Sunday school class back in Chattanooga, and I told him all of this. And I said, Nathan, can you give me some help? Can you, can you help me out? And he said, well, and he began to recount an experience in which he had had to trust God. A time in his life where he knew 
from the confirmation of those around him, from godly people, from his own prayer, from his own personal time in Scripture, from the circumstances. Everything seemed to say, this is where God is leading. And yet the finances simply weren't there. And I said, well, what did you do, Nathan? He says, well, I went, trusting that God would provide, because I trusted that he promised that he would do that. And he said, you know what? He did provide. He says, David, if everything is confirming, the people that are around you, the people that you respect, your sense just from praying and honestly spending time before God with an open heart and a desire to do His will, time in His word, circumstances, everything is confirming that that is where you need to go and you need to do it and you need to trust God. Not make a foolish decision, but trust God. And so I came home that day from Sunday school and church, confirmed in my heart that where I needed to go was the Master's College. And I'm standing here today, this is the fourth year I've been here, and I can tell you time after time after time after time in which the Lord has provided. And believe me, the day I decided I was going to come to the Master's College, God didn't go, okay, you passed the test, here's a check for uh, whatever 14,000 is times four, now you're going to go to the Master's College. It didn't quite work that way. But I can tell you about the time that there was a student my age going to college who came up to me and said, you know, here's, here's some money that kind of fell out from behind a picture frame, uh, as if that was really the story. He says, I know you need some more money to get the master's this year. Can I, can I give you this? I opened it up when I got home. It was $100. I can tell you about the time that uh, I, I went uh, home to my church. I'd been to Kazakhstan on a missions trip. It's right below Russia. And uh, I was come back, and Mark Tatlock had really challenged me to pursue going there a second time and leading a team back. And I went to the elders in my church back in Chattanooga, and I said, you know, I really don't sense that this is right because I don't want to take out a loan. Um, any more than I have to for next year. And if I didn't work during the summer and went to Kazakhstan, I said I'd have to do that. And they said, well, let's pray about it. They came back three days later and said, there's a man anonymously in our church who would like to give you $2,000, not for your missions trip, but to offset the cost of what you'd earn here in the summer. Or I can tell you about the time even, even this summer where I went home and I knew I needed to work at this particular job. It was, again, one of those situations where it just seemed to be confirmed. It was an excellent opportunity to work at a church and be trained for what I want to do in the future. And uh, yet they wouldn't tell me how much they were going to pay me. And a week and a half into the summer, I sat down with my, my boss and I said, Look, uh, you know, it would be really nice if you could tell me how much you're going to pay me. Uh, I, uh, in fact, you know, if, if this isn't going to be enough, then I'm going to have to get a second job on the side. And I'm perfectly willing to do that. But if you just tell me. And he said, Well, what's your need? We'd like to meet that. I mean, I can tell you time after time after time that God has proved himself faithful as I have stepped out. And promises. And believe me, there have been times when I have doubted, times when I have gone, God, I don't understand why this is going this way. God, I don't know what's going on. In fact, you can ask Karen, my sister, I, even this last summer, a strange set of circumstances ended up. Even after the church had met what I thought was the need, I needed $1,000 more because just a strange set of circumstances. And even as I came to college this year, I was fretting over the fact of, well, how is God going to provide? And, and it's just ridiculous based on the fact that that he's provided so faithfully before in the past. But what I want to talk about this morning, that journal that my mother had written provides a perfect illustration of what I want to discuss this morning. And that is, what is it, when we come to the process of making decisions, what is it that we have to do? What does it really mean to trust God? What does it really mean to step out in faith? What does it really mean to do things God's way? And I want to do that by studying the, the, the life of Abraham. So you can turn to Genesis chapter 12, if you will, with me. Genesis chapter 12. <laughs> now, I'm being a little ambitious this morning, and I'll admit that. Uh, it's probably not the best thing to do to bite off this much text, but it, when you look, it's like, it's like uh, you can't look at the life of Abraham in small increments and get the whole picture. And this morning, I want you to get the whole picture. It's like, like opening up a, 
a large package, as it were. It's like looking at a small section of it and not seeing the entire package. And if you don't understand what the, small, the whole picture is, you just look at small parts, you won't understand the whole contents of the package. And so this morning I want to look at the life of Abraham. I want to look at what's there. I want to look at several small parts of it. Because I want you to see as a whole the picture that's there and the progression that Abraham goes through as he trusts God. Um, so you're going to have to forgive me. We're not going to have time for deep exegetical digging into text this morning. You're going to have to trust that I've done some work and what I'm telling you is, is, is true from based on my study. Um, and we're going to go through and we're going to cover a lot of narrative. Um, but hang with me. I want you to see, I think by the end you will, some of these principles. Before we go to the text, I want to, I want to outline four basic premises. Four basic premises that, have, that came out of this study of Genesis chapter 12 through 22. Four basic premises about how God works. Now let, let me tell you something. I want to tell you something very profound. You're going to laugh at me for this. But we can't predict the future. Is that profound or what? You know, thanks, David. I knew that. We can't predict the future. We live in a time-space dimension in which the only thing we know about the past is what God has told us, or what God's told us and what people have told us, what's recorded. The only thing that we know about the future is what God may so choose to reveal to us. That's the only way that we can possibly know the future. Our only real personal ability to understand anything is the present in which we exist, the here and now. I'm convinced that God created the, the, the universe in that way for a purpose. He did that... Because he wants us to trust him. Because inherent in the fact that we don't know what's going to happen in the future, inherent in that is that we have to trust God. Because we simply don't know. That's number two. First of all, we live in a time-space dimension, so we don't know the future. The second foundation, and you'll see how this, this applies to the study later on, is that, that he does it that way because he wants us to trust him. And thirdly, that trust, that faith, that belief in God is not a blind faith. Not a blind faith at all. Instead, no, rather, God testifies to his own ability to accomplish that which he desires. Now, let me explain that. God doesn't ask us just to go, okay, God, you're God, I'm going to trust you. Now, he has every right in the universe to do that. He has every right to say, I'm God, you trust me because you're human. But he doesn't. Instead, he, he, there's two ways that he teaches us about his character. First of all, you all know, we all know experientially from our own lives. God has worked in our own hearts and there are times when you can look back and say, you know, God taught me this in this particular instance. Or God was comforting me in this particular instance. Or God was there then, and I have seen God work in this. I know his character. I know his promises. I know that he can be trusted. The second way that God, tr- that God helps us to understand who he is is that he gives us scripture. And you see, we serve a God who is recounted all throughout the history of mankind who he is. I mean, we serve the God who can do amazing things. God who can flood the entire earth and then raise up a population like we see today. A God who can make a barren woman at a significant age bear a son. A man who can, a God who can take a man and put boils all over his body, kill everything that he loves and owns and then restore it. We serve a God who can tell a man, put that rod down on the ground and watch it turn into a snake. We serve a God who can turn rivers into blood. We serve a God who can part the Red Sea and let people walk through on dry ground. I mean, we serve a God who can feed three million people in the wilderness. We serve a God who can tell people, walk around that city seven times and you'll see the walls fall in front of your eyes. We serve a God who can raise up a kingdom with the splendor of Solomon's. We serve a God who can put a man in the belly of a whale for three days, for goodness sakes, and let him come out alive. We serve a God who can become man, who can heal the lame, make the the lame to walk, heal the sick, make the blind to see. We serve a God who can raise people from the dead. We serve a God who can raise himself from the dead. See, God gives us a testimony in Scripture as to who he is 
and thus asks us to trust Him on that basis. And the fourth thing is that God also gives us promises. He not only gives us an account of the past, but He gives us promises for the future. And these promises are grounded in His character. These promises are grounded in His character. Well, look at Genesis chapter 12. Let me read to you starting in verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. And I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great, and so you should be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse, and in, all, in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. See, God comes to Abraham and he says, I want you to step out in faith. He doesn't even tell him where he's going. He says, I want you to go to the land, what? Verse 1, which I will show you. Abraham's all the way over here at Ur, over on the Euphrates and Tigris River, and he's coming all the way over into Israel. He doesn't even know where he's going. I mean, Abraham's a herder. Abraham's used to moving, but that's a huge move, leaving everything behind. That's what God asks Abraham to do, or Abram. It's really inconvenient that his name changes right in the middle of the text because it gets real confusing, but forgive me. Uh, God gives seven, or no, five promises right here in the beginning of, of the whole story, the whole account of Abraham. Five promises to Abraham. Here they are, real quickly. I want you to see them. I will make you a great nation. Of course, we with our 2020 hindsight can see how all these have happened in amazing ways. I will make you a great nation. Verse 2, I will bless you. Um, I will make your name great. Verse 2. Um, you shall be a blessing to all people. Verse 2 and verse 3. I will protect you. In other words, he's going to bless those who bless them, curse those who curse them. God says, I, my protection will be with you. These are the promises that God gives Abraham. As he says, Abraham, come on, it's time to go. I'm not going to tell you where we're going. I just want you to obey right now. But here are some promises that I'm going to give you so that you can have those kind of chalked away in your belt as you just follow me. Now, what are, what are the, what's the character of God that are revealed from these promises? Well, we see God's worthy of our trust, right? If he, can, if he can do all this, certainly we should trust him. We see he's able to do what he says. I mean, for goodness sakes, he claims quite a bit here. We see he's powerful enough to protect, to lead, to guide, to predict the future, to raise up a nation. We see a God who can do all these things. See, God gives us promises which are based on his character. He does that for us too. Well, let's step into the narrative. Let's step into the narrative very briefly here. Verse 4. So Abraham went forth as the Lord had spoken to him. And Lot went with him. And Abraham was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And Abraham took Sarah his wife and Lot his nephew and all their possessions which they had accumulated and the persons which they had acquired in Haran. And they set out for the land of Canaan. Thus they came to the land of Canaan. Don't you love that? <laughs> they set out, thus they came. And Abram passed through the land as far as the site of Shechem to the oak of Morah. Now the Canaanite was then in the land, that being the people. And the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your descendants I will give this land. So he built Abraham built an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. Verse 8, Then he proceeded from there to the mountain on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and I on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abraham... Well, just do that. Just do verse 8. So we see Abraham gets off to a good start. He goes, Okay, God, I'm going to go. And he goes. And then God says, Okay, here's a little faith booster I just want to show you. I'm really who I said I'm going to be. Here's the land. I'm going to give it to you. Not yet, but eventually... I'm going to give it to you. Now, the truth of the matter is, even though the universe operates on those four principles that we talked about, we have to trust God because we don't know the future. And he gives us the past and the future to help us out as we go about that process of trusting him. Even though that's true, we have a choice, you see. 
Abraham had a choice. When he encountered the situations, the various situations throughout his life, he had a choice to say, God, okay, I'm going to trust you in this experience. Or he could say, God, I'm going to do this in my own strength. I'm going to do this the way I think it ought to be done. I'm going to do this from a human perspective. I don't see how we can do it the way you want it to, so I'm going to do it the way I want to do it. The truth of the matter is that when, when God asks us to trust him, he's asking us. We have a choice whether we're going to do that or not. And so what I want you to look at this morning, I guess narrowing down this introduction here, is that God gives Abraham several instances in his life where Abraham has to make a choice of whether he's going to trust God based on the promises that God has given him or whether he's going to operate in his own strength, in his own spirit, in his own methodology. Okay? So let's look. Let's look at those instances. The first one is Genesis chapter 12, verse 10, continuing right on from where we were. This is the story of Abraham's sojourn to Egypt. Now, there was a famine in the land, verse 10 of chapter 12. So Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. And it came about that when he came near to Egypt, that he said to Sarah, his wife, See now, I know that you are a beautiful woman. Here's a dedicated husband, at least for now. And it will come about that when the Egyptians see you, that they will say, This is his wife, and they will kill me, <laughs> but they will let you live. Please say that you are my sister, and so that, may, that it may go well with me because of you, and that I may live on account of you. Do you see what Abram's doing here? He's going, hmm. Now, God said he's going to protect me, but hmm. these guys are going to think my wife's cute, and, uh, you know, when it comes down to it, they're going to kill me because they're going to be jealous, and that's just the way things work around here. So, let's just twist things a little bit. Let's just say Sarah's my sister. Now, you have to know, this is just a small twisting of the truth. Sarah actually was his half-sister. You can deal with that difficulty later, but Sarah actually was his half-sister. <laughs> And uh, so he says, well, I'll just actually say, it's just a matter of semantics. I'll just say what's true, but that'll get me off the hook. Moreover, he goes, and I'll be blessed because of it, because I've got this pretty sister, this Pharaoh, he's going to give me all sorts of riches, and he's going to treat me well. I mean, there's a famine going on up in Canaan. I don't want to be there. I want to be down in Egypt where somebody's going to provide for me because of Sarah. Well, that was a bad choice. (laughs) Look at verse 14. And it came about that when Abram came to Egypt, what happened? Exactly as he predicted. The Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. And Pharaoh's officials, officials saw her and praised her to the Pharaoh, and the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. Therefore he treated Abram well for her sake and gave him sheep and oxen and donkeys and male and female servants and female donkeys and camels. Now, I, I don't know what was in Abraham's mind. And personally, I would have taken the wife instead of the donkey and camels, but uh, leave that to Abraham. We'll ask him about that when we get to heaven. He goes, okay, everything's going fine. I've got what I wanted. I'm being treated well. I'm alive. I'm protecting myself. Then we find out in verse 17 that sin always has consequences. Sin always has consequences. Verse 17, but the Lord struck Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. And Pharaoh called Abram and said, what is this that you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she's my sister so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here's your wife. Take her and go. And Pharaoh commanded his men concerning him, and they escorted him away and his wife and all that belonged to him. You see, sin always has consequences. You can't get away with sin. Abraham said, I'm going to do this my way. I'm going to protect myself. And the essence of that desire to protect himself was a lack of trust in God. You see, not trusting God is always sin. Hebrews 11.6 tells us that. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. Abandoning God's method always leads to less than God's best for our life. Can I say that again? Abandoning 
God's method always leads to less than God's best for our life. Well, let's look at instance number two. In Genesis chapter 15, verses 1 to 6, we're tracing the promise of God to Abraham, Abram, to make him a great nation, to give him a son, to give him an heir. And we're looking at Abraham's response to these various tests, these various times when he has to choose whether he's going to respond in faith and in trusting God or whether he's going to respond in his own strength using his own methodology. Well, let's look at this. Verse 1 of chapter 15. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Do not fear, Abram. I am a shield to you. Your reward shall be very great. Again, this is God's faith booster, God's reminder to Abram. Here I am. My promises are still true. I've been faithful in the past. There's those principles again. Verse 2, And Abram said, O Lord, God, what wilt thou give me, since I am childless and an heir of my house? The heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Since thou hast given no offspring to me, one born of my house is my heir. Then behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This man will not be your heir, but one who shall come forth from your own body, he shall be your heir. Abram says, Look, this is just the way we normally do things around here. If you don't have an offspring, you appoint somebody, one of your head servants, one of the chief, uh, chief heir, somebody as the chief heir of your house. That's just commonly done. But Abraham's mistake here was this. Abraham assumes that God is limited to the ways of man. Abraham assumes that God is limited to the ways of man. God says this, verse 5. God took him outside, that being Abraham, and said, Now now look towards the heavens. Count the stars. You can just imagine God saying this. Abraham, can you you just count those for a minute, please? (laughs) Abraham's going, yeah, well, that's a lot, God. I, I can't count them all, but that's a lot. God says, if you're even able to count them. And God said to him, so shall your descendants be. Now look, Abraham takes a little upswing here. Verse 6. Then he believed in the Lord, and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. Abraham takes a little upswing. He goes, okay. All right. God, I'll trust you. God, I don't understand that. I can't even count the stars right now, but I'll trust that's the case. But his mistake earlier on was that he assumed that God is limited to the ways of man. Do we do that? I have to give you a perfect illustration of that. Again, it comes from Kazakhstan. I was in Kazakhstan. This was the first year I was there. And we were in the city of Uskamenogorsk. And we were there, and there was a lot of... They didn't know we were coming, okay? And so there was a lot of scrambling to try to, to, try to provide us with opportunities to minister. And if you've ever been on a missions trip, you know one of the most frustrating things is to go and not have anything to do. You, know, you ever experienced that? Maybe a missions conference. You go, and you're all psyched up. You're like... I've set aside this time. I mean, I am here with no distractions strictly to serve God and, and to sit around and not have anything to do is very, very, very frustrating. And here we are. We've been there for four days. And they weren't prepared. And there was nothing for us to do. And we sat around. And on the fifth day, they'd finally, they'd found four kindergartens for us to go to. And we were going to have the opportunity that day to share the gospel through puppet shows. We were prepared. We were, we were ready to share the gospel with about 200 children that had probably never even heard the name of God, certainly hadn't understood that God created the earth and probably certainly not understood the biblical uh, atonement of Christ. We were, we were, we were getting, getting an awesome opportunity. We woke up that morning and the host, the lady came to she said, you know, there's some gas in the air and it's poisonous and we don't want you to go outside because it may cause birth defects and we don't know what it'll do to you and we, we, don't, we, don't, we want to protect you. 
And uh, so we're sitting here and we're just like, oh, God, how could you let this happen? I mean, we finally got something lined up and, nope, can't do it. But we'll... <laughs> We limited God to the ways of man. We assumed that we had to plan things. We had to make things happen. See, God doesn't work that way. That very day, God brought to our doorstep five different people. And one of those we were able to talk with for two and a half hours and led Jesus Christ. A genuine conversion. A genuine conversion. Amazing. See, God is not limited to the ways of man. Do you limit him? Do you limit him to your human terms? Do you put him in your box and say, Well, God, you're obviously going to have to operate this way. That was Abram's mistake. That was Abram's mistake. Let's look at instance number three. The birth of Ishmael. The birth of Ishmael. Genesis chapter 16. Genesis chapter 16. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. Still no baby, all right? And she had an Egyptian maid whose name was Hagar. So Sarah said to Abram, Now behold, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Please go into my maid. Perhaps I shall obtain children through her. Now here's the key phrase at the end of verse 2. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. Abraham's mistake here, what is it? Abraham listened to the voice of man rather than obeying God. Abraham listened to the voice of man rather than obeying God. Again, this was a common practice in that day. But it was not God's way. And Abraham listened to counsel that was bad, counsel that was corrupted, counsel that was self-motivated. Do you do that? Do you surround yourself with good counsel? Or do you run to the people you want to hear from so that you can justify what you want to do? If we're going to trust God and we're going to use the people around us to confirm the direction that we have to go as we step out in faith not knowing the future, we have got to surround ourselves with people who are trustworthy and biblical. Do you do that? Well, the second thing in this passage, Abraham made a second mistake. He made the mistake of being impatient for the fulfillment of God's promise. He said, you know, I'm getting pretty old here. He's in between 75 and 100 here. Like, I'm ready for a son. I'm ready for this to happen. God, I can't wait much longer. It's not going to be biologically possible. I mean, come on, can't we do this? And God says, no, you need to be patient. You need to be patient. You need to be patient. Do we do that today? Certainly we do. We are impatient for the fulfillment of God's promises, even His good promises. <laughs> Maybe some of you today are ready to get married. I've heard some people that are ready to get married. They, they just can't wait. And that's a good thing. That's a righteous thing. That's pleasing to God. But if you're pushing His timing and saying, God, I want it now, then it, even though you're desiring a good thing, it's not of the Lord. Or maybe you're in a relationship. Maybe you're in a relationship and it's not pure because you can't wait for that physical union that's going to occur in the future and the way God has designed it. Maybe you're at a point where you're saying, I can't wait, I can't wait, I can't wait for that. And the story of Abraham is crying out to you today. Be patient. Be patient. God has a purpose for not fulfilling His promises now. He has a very specific reason, and it may differ from person to person, but He has specific reasons for making us wait. And, moreover... The consequences of sin, of impatience, and God's timing are often very drastic. We won't take time to read the text, but this is the story of Ishmael. And many people believe today that Ishmael was the, not descendant, the, not ascendant, the predecessor, what would you call it, of the, the Arab people, who are constantly at war with God's people. 
Sin has drastic consequences. Don't be impatient. Well, let's look at instance number four. Genesis chapter 17. And I want you to look specifically in verses 15. Verse 15. Let's see what Abraham's mistake or victory was here. Verse 15 of chapter 17. Then God said to Abraham, as for Sarah, this is in the middle of of the covenant, and God's talking about circumcision and and everything that's associated with that part of the establishment of the covenant. And God said to Abraham, as for Sarah, your wife, you you shall not call her name Sarah, but Sarah shall be her name. And I will bless her, and indeed I will give you a son by her. Then I will bless her, and she shall be a mother of nations, king of peoples, Shall come for her. Come from her. Now, verse seventeen. Watch this. Everybody, look at the text. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed, and said in his heart, "Will a child be born to a man one hundred years old? And will Sarah, who is ninety years old, bear a child?" And Abraham said to God, "Oh, that Ishmael might live before thee." But God said, "No. But Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac, and I will establish my covenant with him." for an everlasting covenant for his descendants after him. Abraham outright disbelieves God, for lack of a better word. He laughs in God's face. He goes, you can't do this. It's ridiculous. It's ludicrous. He looks at God and he says, no way. I don't believe it. I'd say that's the worst of the sins of Abraham, the mistakes of Abraham. Sarah does the same thing. If you look over in chapter 18, verse 12, Sarah And Sarah laughed to herself, overhearing the conversation. After I have become old, shall I have pleasure, my Lord being old also? She goes, it just doesn't work this way. This is impossible. Verse 13, and the Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh? Don't you hate it when God overhears your thoughts? Why did Sarah laugh, saying, I shall indeed bear a child when I am so old? Verse 14, this is God speaking. This is God's response to Abraham's disbelief and Sarah's disbelief. Verse 14, Is anything too difficult for the Lord? What a response. Is anything too difficult for the Lord? Obviously a rhetorical question, the conclusion being, no, absolutely not. I can do anything I so desire. Abraham outright disbelieved God. And God reminded him in a poignant fashion, I can do what I will. You should trust me. And God gave Abraham and Sarah, a reminder of the fact that they had not believed. You know what the name Isaac means? Laughter. Laughter. Every time they called their son's name, Isaac, come here. Isaac, would you build a fire? Isaac, they're reminding themselves of the fact that they had disbelieved God. And right there in front of them is evidence that God is able to do that which he desires to do. Well, Isaac was born. We won't read the account, but it's in chapter 21. The birth finally came. After much anticipation, after much mistake on Abraham and Sarah's part, the child who was promised was born in a miraculous way. And here's the text I want us to conclude with. I want us to look at the sacrifice of Isaac. Chapter 22. Chapter 22. I don't think you can understand this text unless you understand what leads up to it. Unless you, like I said, unless you understand the entire context of what's going on. See, we always think this is a gruesome story. We always wonder why in the world is this in the Bible. And when you understand what God is doing and how God is working in Abraham's life, you can understand why God does this. You see, Isaac was just anticipated. I mean, they wanted him so bad they could taste it. Wanted it so bad that 
time after time after time, they, they did in their own strength what they could to produce God's promise. Chapter 22. Now it came about after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. Verse 2. And God said, now take now your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac. God's making things very clear here. <laughs> no mistakes this time, Abraham. And go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I will tell you. Does that smack of Genesis chapter 12? Go where I will tell you? Is God asking a lot of Abraham? You betcha. You betcha. But what does Abraham do this time? We're on a huge upswing now for Abraham. Verse 3, So Abraham rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and Isaac his son and he split wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place which God had told him. Now, people would argue with this. they say, well, Abraham could have been doing all this begrudgingly. And some other people would argue, well, the text says, so Abraham did it immediately. My simple answer to that is, the text tells us all the times Abraham makes a mistake before this. The text very clearly points out when Abraham lacks faith. But this time, there's nothing in the text that says that, that was the case. And moreover, if Abraham was lacking in faith, I don't think he could have carried through to the point that he does in carrying out the sacrifice of Isaac. We'll see how far he goes in the obedience. Verse 4. And on the third day, Abraham raised his eyes and saw the place from a distance. This wasn't like going next door and sacrificing your son. Can you imagine getting on a horse and for three days you're thinking, am I really going to do this? God, mm, this, is, this is a lot to ask. I mean, I've waited for 25 years for this. It's been a miraculous birth. I've learned a lot in the process. How are you going to fulfill your promises? You said through Isaac you were going to keep your covenant. Now you're telling me to sacrifice him? God, this doesn't make any sense to me. Can you imagine three days of that? Can you imagine? Maybe you've been there before. Verse 5. And Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey, and I and the lad will go yonder, and we will worship and return to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife, so the two of them walked on together. Verse 7. And Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and said, My father. And he said, Here I am, my son. And he said, Behold, the fire and the wood, but... Where's the lamb for the burnt offering? I mean, can you imagine Abraham's heart going, Oh, gosh, did he have to ask that? Can you imagine what that did to Abraham? Dad, where's the lamb? But look at Abraham's response, verse 8. God will provide. Has Abraham learned something? Sure has. God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. So the two of them walked on together. Verse 9. And then they came to the place which God had told him. And Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood and bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. And Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. Now, God couldn't have intervened at a later moment. I mean, that was it. That was the last possible time that God could have intervened and said, Nope, don't do it. God wrung every bit of juice out of Abraham. I mean, he was testing him to the final bit. I mean, he took him all the way to the raising of the knife over his son. But Abraham passed the test. <laughs> he did. Look, verse 11. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here I am. And he said, Do not stretch out your hand against the lad and do nothing to him. For now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Then Abraham raised his eyes and looked. This is so beautiful, guys. And behold, behind him a ram caught in the thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered him up for a burnt offering 
in the place of his son. And the Lord and Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. That's so amazing. That's so amazing. Abraham actually came to a point where he realized, God, you are in control of my circumstances. And I'm going to trust you to do things your way and I'm not going to try to accomplish it in my own strength. Let me just read this. Don't turn there. Let me read Hebrews 11, verse 17 to you. This gives us a little insight into how Abraham was able to do this. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was offering up his only begotten son. It was he to whom it was said, and Isaac your descendant shall be called. Verse 19 tells us why. He considered, Abraham considered that God is able to raise men even from the dead. Abraham said, you know what? I finally come to a point where I can trust God. I finally come to a point where I can say, you know what? Even if I kill my son, God is able to raise him from the dead. I'm looking at this, and from a human perspective, it makes no sense. From a human perspective, I don't understand how I can possibly kill my son, how the promise of God for a nation coming from Isaac, a covenant made through Isaac, will be fulfilled. But God, I'll slay him if you want me to, and I'll trust that you'll raise him up from the dead. Abraham comes to that point. And what I have to ask you today is, are we at that point? Are you at that point? (laughs) Perhaps this is my Southern Baptist nature coming out of me, but... uh, I'm going to ask Kimberly to step to the piano. I'm not doing an altar call or anything like that. But I think that too often we leave chapel without meditating on the truth that we've heard. Okay? I just want everybody to bow their heads. And I'm just going to give you about two minutes to meditate on this truth. Okay? Let's pray. What is it that you're having a hard time trusting God with today? Just identify it, all right? Identify it in your mind. Ask God, what is it? Is it marriage? Is it the future? What you're going to do after graduation? Is it what classes you're going to choose next semester? Is it how you're going to respond to your parents? Or where are you going to go to church? Is it a relationship? Or should you have a relationship? What is it that you're having a hard time trusting God with today? Commit it to the Lord. Purpose to change. Think in your mind what you'll do to change. What, What has to take place in your life to come to a point We're like Abraham. You can say, God, it makes no sense, but I'll step out on faith if that's the direction you're sending me. We wanted to give you some time this morning to encourage each other by sharing an incident, maybe that happened this summer because we didn't get to have a a share chapel as we uh, came back from the summer this year. We really wanted to do that because those times can be so encouraging.